0: I get the privilege of introducing a guest speaker this morning. So I get to welcome up Matt Holland. And he is the pastor at St. Thomas Covenant Church in Salem. And rumor has it that he also used to attend here. So if you would uh, join me in welcoming up Matt Holland. (laughs) Thanks, Jaron. Hi, West Hills. I'm loud. All right, Uh, gives me a lot of power. We keep our mic really low at St. Thomas to not overwhelm people because I shout randomly. Uh, For those of you that have not met me, I got the—I had the privilege of being at St. or at West Hills uh, from like 2012 to 2015 while I was finishing up seminary. This was a church that, in some ways, put me back together after parts of my life that I thought were very stable proved not to be. Uh, This was a church that became my friends and my family and my support system in the midst of just a lot. And so when Stephanie, Pastor Stephanie called and said, hey, could you come preach? I almost like yelled an email, all caps, like, yes, I would love to. Tell me when I'll say whatever you want me to say. And she said, well, why why don't you say what you want to say, or maybe what God wants you to say. And so I'm so grateful to be here. For those of you that don't know me, uh, I left West Hills to go down to Salem and plant St. Thomas Covenant Church. We are a church. Geared primarily towards reaching people who have been let, hurt, uh, let down by, hurt by, or uh, found the church wanting in some way. So we do church pretty differently, pretty weird. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful little ragamuffin bunch, and I'm so grateful for it. And so much of what I learned here is reflected in it. And for those of you that do know me and have been wondering, what in the world have you been up to for the last you know, four years? I got married to this beautiful woman. That's our church on Easter, so I had a jacket on. I have to wear a jacket on Easter. Uh, and I we had our wonderful son, Emmett. He's the cutest. Um, all of you that think you have cuter kids, you're wrong. But bless your heart for thinking that way. Uh, Emmett is 10 months old. He started walking at 8 months and sprints into corners with his face first all the time. So we are tired and overwhelmed every minute of the day and it is wonderful. This morning I woke up to find that our dogs had uh, vomited throughout the house and and then Emmett wanted to grab that while I was trying to vacuum it up. So I've showered since then. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, I heard that you all have VBS this week. My sites tell me that I'm not wrong in that. And I love VBS. Vacation Bible School is one of those really cool, really beautiful, really epic times of year where everything is fun. Like we make our sanctuaries fun. uh, We create all this time and this energy and this money we put into making a fun week for our young people so that they can see how fun and how beautiful and how compelling the kingdom of God is and how fun and how beautiful Jesus is. But I think if you were to go around the street and ask a bunch of strangers for a list of adjectives to describe Christians, you know where I'm going with this. Fun is probably not the number one word on that list. Probably playful is not a number one word on that list. I'd imagine you have to get pretty deep into the list to get either of those words. Probably more often, we'd unfortunately get judgmental or stuffy or boring or rigid or something like that. And I think that teaches us something a little bit about who we are as a people. I think that reveals something that is a little bit broken in how we understand the gospel. Because there's this absolute truth of the gospel that Jesus invites us to something full and abundant and compelling and good. We see people running towards Jesus all the time. We see Jesus at meals and at parties. And we don't often get connected with that. And so I want to start by reading our passage here. We're in Luke chapter 15 Uh, not to show all my cards, but I would argue that Luke chapter 15 is one of the two best and most important chapters in the Bible. Luke chapter 14 is the other, so, you know, fight me if you want to. Uh, it's all right, I'm going to read it, and it's my bias, and I'm up here, so ready for this. All right, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so tell me that where is there a woman who, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God for one sinner who repents. And then the more famous of the stories. And then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. And so he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his property property on dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine came over the country, took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to the citizens of that country, and he sent Who sent him to the field to feed the pigs? He would gladly have filled himself with the pods the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And so he set off and went to his father, and while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father yelled to his slaves, quickly, Bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill us. Let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine that was dead was alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Amen. The word of the Lord. I love that you can always date like the church. Like who's in the room that grew up like Lutheran, like myself, or like old school Covenant? Because we instinctively say, "Thanks be to God," and, and the rest of us that are like, oh, I, I missed again. You know, something, there's something beautiful about it. It is no mistake that the metaphor Jesus uses to talk about the kingdom of God more than any other is that of a banquet or a party or a celebration. It is no mistake that the charge riled against him and thrown at him was that he was a drunkard and a glutton, that Jesus lived his life in abundance, lived his life at parties, lived his life so compellingly and so completely that people ran to him, attracted to him, and saw the beauty in him. Jesus was the embodiment of what it looks like for a human to live an abundant life. In John ten ten he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. When I was in seminary, actually undergrad, I got really distracted by that verse because steal, kill, and destroy, steal seems like a word, but kill and destroy seem like synonyms. So why is Jesus wasting words? Ink is expensive in the Middle East at this time, right? Uh, and so I started doing some research on it, and steal, kill, and destroy, kill, and destroy aren't actually the same and the root of destroy actually often gets translated to render useless. And how compelling to me as a people that are often confused with being stuffy and boring that maybe we've been rendered useless. Maybe that's what the thief came to do. And Jesus says, I have come that you may have abundant life. And that doesn't mean perfect life, and that doesn't mean wealthy life, and that doesn't mean expensive life. It means life and full life, full spectrum life. All of the emotions are available to us that we can experience the best highs and the lowest lows, that we will laugh more and cry more and have our hearts broken by the things that God's hearts are broken by. That there's this abundance latent in the gospel. And that abundance includes fun. That abundance includes play. And I can hear some of us in the room going, how can you have fun when that's that's good time that you could be using doing work, right? Like, that is time that I could be making money. Those are billable hours you're talking about there. There's some of us out there that are going, well, yeah, fun's well and good when you're young. But then I had to grow up. But if you start to do the reading and the research on what it means to to understand a theology of fun, you'll find this incredible, brilliant book by Jürgen Moltmann uh, called The Theology of Play. I'll just warn you, it is out of print, and when I looked on Amazon, there was one copy for $400 and two for $900. So... I think it's a great book. I read it in a library once. I don't know if it's a $900 book. That said, Jürgen Moltmann, to save you that $900, did this incredible job of laying out what a theology of play might look like. And he named five big pieces of why we as followers of Jesus should play. Are you ready for them? The first one, play is a practice for eternity. It provides a momentary escape into a future reality that God intended for us all. When we work on a soccer team or we play a sport, we practice. We get our muscles learning those skills. Tennis is all about muscle memory. When we play, we are developing the muscles to experience the kingdom as God intended it. There is something radical and transformative about saying, it is not wasting time, it is building muscle memory into a life well lived. Two, play is a celebration of the abundant life Jesus promised. Jesus says, come experience abundance, and play is one of those places where we feel all of those emotions. For those of you that watch basketball, maybe, and you're a Warriors fan, you felt some very high highs this season and some very low lows this season. Uh, For those of the Raptors fans, it may have been more of a vertical. I don't watch basketball, but I looked up that to give that analogy to you all. The third one, and I think the most compelling of all, is that God is playful, and we are created in God's image. God does not have to create a world as beautiful and complex and mesmerizing as this one. God could say, I want to create creatures that worship me. Here's a black ball, a yellow light in the sky, and then stick people on it. And we could all look the same. But God, in God's playfulness, creates beauty and glory and things that take our breath away and platypuses and all sorts of things that are so true about playfulness. And so when we play, we call out what God made in us the image of God latent in and apparent to all around us is there and more available when we play. I think one of the most beautiful is that play is just joyful and fun, and when you are joyful and fun in one part of your life, it leaks out over all of the parts of your life, right? It's so hard to go from a comedy show or a good movie and walk out in a bad mood. Right, And so even when you get in the car and you're stuck in traffic, if it was a good enough movie, the traffic doesn't bother you like it would have the day before. It leaks into all of the other aspects of who we are as humans. And so we play, and when we play often, we become more playful as a whole. And when we play, it reveals what we are most excited about. Emmett right now has... Two main forms of play. Emma is my 10-month-old son. One, running and trying to grab the stove because he knows he's not allowed. So, you know, let's just talk about sin over here somewhere. Um, But two, he wants to run and grab something colorful and bring it to us. And so he grabs a book and sits in my lap And I see this thing, this delight in Emmett. Emmett wants to open and turn every page faster than I could read any of the words on it. And I see that he is impulsive, he is fast-moving, but he likes color, and he likes texture, and he likes beauty. And that's something about Emmett that I think as he gets older, people will tell him to hide. Because there are things about each of us that when we get older, people go, don't don't bring that out anymore, and don't don't show that side of you. That's not really appropriate for this situation. But man, we have kids in our worship space at St. Thomas the whole time, which is distracting at points, but kids have fun at church when you let them, you know? How many of us have gone to church and not had fun? Maybe right now you're not having fun. If you were a young person in this room, you'd have fun anyway, unless your mom is holding you in the seat and saying, no, bottle that up. We get to have fun, and it reveals who we are. So if the idea of following Jesus means you become more who God made you to be, playing reveals more of who God made you to be. Those things that give you life reveal more of who God made you to be. When we play, we experience the kingdom come now. We say all the time that the gospel of Jesus is already and not yet. Well, then let's pretend it's already today and play. Let's have fun. Some of you might be thinking, well, that does sound well and good, but I'm about saving souls. And I don't have time to play because I want to save souls. And I would argue that when play leaks into every part of our life, we become more compelling. And to illustrate that, I'm going to show you a very strange video. So bear with me as it starts, I think it will click as it goes on video. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god, I give it video. There's something so compelling about that video. That's at Sasquatch in the Gorge, and if you've been there, there's like a normal flat area in the stage where the like, fans of a musician are, like, and everyone else is scattered about in the fields. And So the people up on this grassy hill are not super into this musician. They're like one of the acts they came for, or they didn't want to get there early. And this one crazy guy is super into it. And he is so into it that some stranger just cannot help but film him. And he is so into it that other strangers feel invited into it. And in that invitation, it grows and it swells. And you see why 5,000 men are gathered to have dinner with Jesus, not to mention the women and children. That you see the compellingness of Jesus when a human lives fully alive. There is something so radically transformative about when we Christians believe that God is fun and believe that following Jesus should be joyful, that that happens. When you see a church growing like West Hills, you know that fun is being had here. You know that VBS is transforming people, but that everything else is too. I want to read, uh, I think, The most formative book I've ever read, aside from the Bible, for anyone that thought, ooh, heresy, Uh, aside from the Bible is The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Uh, And he writes this in the ending part of his essay on The Weight of Glory. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and take a deep breath as we listen to this and think about what this might say for us. It is a serious thing to live in in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you would not meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals with whom we joke, work, snub, exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest thing presented to your senses on this side of eternity. He goes on to say, that doesn't mean we must be solemn. We must play. And it's the merriest kind of play. But that play and that merriment can only be achieved when we have first taken one another seriously. And so I think when we think about play, the reason some of us have taken more serious positions in our life is that we fear that we are going to hurt others. And I would say this quote to me becomes the foil of that. In my play, am I pushing others around me towards something God made them to be, or am I pushing them away from that? I think when we actually play, it always pushes one another towards what God made us to be. And when we play in the selfish and destructive way, that is not play at all, but a perversion of it. So may we be a people, West Hills Covenant Church, that play so radically that people run to us, slipping in the grass to be a part of what we are doing. May we be a people that recognize how often the Bible has stories of party and celebration. May we be a people who play and play in a way that brings about Jesus in our midst. Amen.